Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Maybe you haven't noticed, but it's Tuesday. But we're going to have Monday on Tuesday here on Mornings with Carmen. And so we're going to be uh, catching up with many of our regular Monday conversation partners. Um, So don't worry, you have not missed the weekly COVID roundup and you have not missed our weekly conversation with David Aikman about what in the world is going on in the rest of the world. So uh, today is... Tuesday, but it feels like a Monday. And at some point today, it's going to feel like you lost a day. So you might experience that as a relief. Um, You are just as likely to experience that as a disorienting truncation of the time that you thought you had to accomplish the task that you associated with Monday, which you didn't get done because, well, it's a lost day. So all of that reminded me this morning of Joshua 10, 12. Now, you might say to yourself, well, no, 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 no. They got an extra day. Well, not really. They kind of lost a day. Um, So it's understood as the longest day. It's also understood as the lost day, sort of depends on your perspective. So if you Google it, you're going to find a wildly diverse array of rationalizations, justifications, and pure fabrications in an attempt to explain to the satisfaction of the 21st century mind something that God says, well, he did. God, in support of Joshua, in support of God's command that they... Uh, conquer the land of Canaan. So in support of Joshua, in support of his people, in support of the battle that they were in, uh, God ordered the sun and the moon to stand still. Now, God also sent hail upon the enemies of his people. He did all kinds of extraordinary things. At one point, he just opens the earth and swallows them up. Um, But those are stories for another day. Did God make the sun and the moon pause? And if so, if so, how are we even having this conversation? I mean, so just think about that for a moment. Knowing what we think we know about the way the universe works, if indeed the sun and the moon both stood still, <clears throat> how, how are we still here? Like, how literally are we here? So the only way that this works is if God is really God. God is uh, really not only who he says he is, but really the creator of all things, including the sun and the moon and the stars and everything else and how it all works, and that God is far more able to do things that we cannot explain and that we are ordinarily scared to even imagine. So I'm going to go ahead and just let you off the hook today. If you're a Christian, it is not your responsibility to alleviate every skeptic in the world of their doubts about God. It is your responsibility to give God the glory and the honor that you know is due him today. That's your job. That's my job. Our job is to give God the glory and the honor that we know is due him today. So you be you. I'll be me. And we'll let God be God. Now, this whole story does remind me of 
that fake news is not new. Um, you, you know, we're going to hear a lot about fake news in the, in the next. We only have a few short weeks left in this election process, but we're going to hear a lot about fake news in that cycle. <clears throat> and I just want to remind you that fake news is not new and that telling the truth matters. Telling the truth matters. Being purveyors of the truth matters. So let's tell the truth about the one whom we know is the way and the truth and the life, and let's not make up stuff that's not true. And certainly let's not pass along to others things that we receive that aren't true. So let me just encourage you, tell the truth today, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help us God. And let's get on with Monday on Tuesday. So next up, Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. We're going to cover the COVID headlines. We'll be right back. It's good to have you back again. Oh, hey, 98.6. Joining me now, Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. Welcome back, Zach. Thank you for having me. Hey, absolutely. All right, so lots and lots and lots of COVID headlines today. Um, Maybe we just remind people of sort of where we're at in terms of the numbers, total confirmed cases in the U.S. Uh, I'm drawing on a 3 a.m. number uh, here. A little over 6 million total deaths, uh, 189,215 total recoveries, 2,333,551. Um, and more than 82, 83 million tests. Um, talk with us about, from your perspective, kind of where we are. Give us, you know, help us find our feet. And then let's talk about some of the headlines, particularly related to maybe vaccines and vaccine allocation. So I think a good way to think about how we've progressed with dealing things is uh, actually summarized by a comment the president made yesterday in, in a talk. He shared, I think, that we've decreased the case fatality rate of COVID in the U.S. by about 85 percent since the start of the pandemic. And that's true. Um, so, so really, we've seen that uh, mortality rate continue to go down. We're hovering at a little bit above 3 percent right now. For, for any individual that, that has COVID. And the reason that that has occurred is, and, and I think he pointed this out as well, is we have a lot of advances when it comes to therapeutics, when it comes to managing patients. And, and we've kind of highlighted that over the past weeks as well. So we're heading in a positive direction that way. What we're seeing in contrast with that though, is we're having a surge of cases that's starting to occur in the Midwest. Um, we're also, a little bit concerned right now, I think, about what might happen following Labor Day. So we might see like these little pocket outbreaks that are that are occurring because people have kind of gone out and gathered in bigger groups. Okay, so let's just you and I use ourselves and maybe what we whatever it is that we saw yesterday. Um, and and I'll I'll go first. So you know I was only with you know the same tiny little group of people that I'm ever with. Uh, but I will say that as we were driving from uh, from my parents' house back here, and we weren't really with them because they're older, and so you know they're they're kind of in one part, and we're kind of in another part. But we did enjoy some time outside together, socially distanced, um, on a lake, 
Uh, but let me tell you, we saw some party boats and we saw some boathouses packed, packed with people. And I am, of course, thinking to myself, that that's it's just not responsible. That was the that was sort of the word that came to me. It's just not responsible. Um, talk about responsibility and the responsibility that each one of us still has to take. Like we're not over this. We're not through this. We're not done with this. We don't yet have a real solution for it. We have therapeutics, but avoiding contracting it is still the best option. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're definitely right. Uh, as far as my experience yesterday, I was actually at the hospital and it was uh, mm. very, very empty, which goes to show you uh, probably a lot of individuals were out doing things too. Um, but I would say as far as as far as responsibility goes, it, it's kind of a, it's kind of a tough situation because you've got lots of people who are at different places with this whole situation, um, and a lot of people want to just be done with it. That that's true on 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 all sides. Um, I I'd like to be done with it too, but but because of that, and I think because of a lot of the back and forth with information, people sometimes I think just resolve themselves to continue on and, and do things as they as they normally would. But some some of the struggle with that is I don't think people necessarily have some personal connection to what's actually been happening with the virus in parts of the country. So it's it's harder for them to see. They don't know how to fight mm. an invisible enemy. And it's and it's still really disconnected for a lot of people. It's happening to some other group of people somewhere else. They haven't had any sort of personal experience with it. And so therefore it's it's not really happening in a way that they're sensitive to. Exactly. I mean, if you look okay. at some states where they've had more of that that uh, close encounter, that I think is a little bit more meaningful to them. Whereas in the Midwest, we've been relatively insulated in contrast. So it's, it's a little bit more unique here. All right. I'm talking with Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. We're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. There's always a reason to always choose joy. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. Um, Zach, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about steroids. Uh, okay, because, you know, everything is ultimately about me. Um, I had to take a, ra- a course, a round of steroids to deal with some kind of crazy rash on my arm that my uh, primary care physician was convinced was because I exposed myself to some, uh, you know, toxic plant in my garden. So um, uh, I've had my first experience ever of taking a steroid, I think, in my entire life. And um, wow, that's a really effective way of dealing with at least that particular thing. Um, Steroids are in the headlines for a totally different reason. Talk with us about the potential of this positive therapeutic. So when it comes to, to the corticosteroids, basically their their primary role is decreasing inflammation. And so we use it with other respiratory illnesses to help kind of uh, stave off some of the, I guess, wide-scale inflammation that makes it very challenging for people to supply oxygen to their body. And, mm. and so when we think about COVID, it's kind of a similar underlying principle there. There are some, un, there are some things we don't know, um, and there are some things we know. So as far as what we know, there's been a lot of good data that's come out. Most recently, there was an article published in the Journal of the American Medical Association 
which talked about how when you use uh, steroids in the setting of COVID for hospitalized patients, you decrease the chance that a patient will be on a ventilator and you also improve uh, overall mortality rates. So, so both of those things speak very highly to steroids. Um, the, the question I think that would naturally come next though, and this is what we don't know, would people benefit from earlier use of steroids before they were in the hospital setting? So that's kind of uh, one of the things that we still need to dig into. And, and to your point, you, you had uh, steroids for a rash. Well, could we use steroids in the outpatient setting to try to stave off COVID from, from becoming worse? There are a lot of benefits too. We know, we know steroids are pretty inexpensive. Um, and uh, we also know that they're pretty readily accessible all right, so then there's the whole downside, though, because, like, um, when I think of steroids, I'll just confess to you the same thing that I confess to my, uh, you know, my primary care physician. Um, that sounds super scary to me. That sounds like what those people are doing that, you know, they get all muscular and then they don't look right anymore. <laughs> what it, When we're talking about the kind of steroids that we're talking about, first of all, just can you explain, is it like a category? What, what are we talking about? So, so there are different types of uh, steroids that are out there. So anabolic steroids are the ones that we think about when uh, we deal with people who maybe are using it when they're weightlifting to gain In an inappropriate way. Rate. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Whereas uh, uh, glucocorticoids or corticosteroids, which are the things that we commonly use to help with inflammation, infections, um, those, those are actually naturally occurring substances in our body that we, we normally have. We're basically just... Uh, providing an extra supply um, for a greater effect. Okay. Well, all right. And, um, but it's not something that you want to do a lot of or be on long-term. This is a, this is a short-term kind of thing, right? Correct. Um, Some people are on long-term steroids, but we do have Hmm. to be concerned if you have it for huge durations because you can actually depress your immune system's function. And it does cause things like weight gain, can cause some restlessness. Uh, so, so those are reasons we would probably not want to put steroids on, on a person for a long period of time. Well, restlessness. For those who've been listening last week, they know I have been a little, um, I described it as feeling over-caffeinated, but maybe I was actually just <laughs> a little. Yeah. I, <laughs> there I, you go. I've always told patients it gives you a little extra pep in your step. Oh, well, there you go. Okay. Uh, that may, exp- well, Paul Perot, there you go. May explain my behavior last week. Um, okay. Hey, one more question, um, Zach, and that is uh, I am due to travel from uh, here, you know, in the central part of the United States to the Twin Cities so that I can participate next week in our um, fall share campaign. And it's just easier if we're, you know, kind of all at least where we can see each other, even if we're not obviously in the same room together. So talk with me a little bit about what counsel you give to those who are planning to travel um, and maybe what uh, additional precautions you would take if you were traveling. So I I would say if you're uh, traveling via air, you actually are, are in good company when it comes to taking precautions. The airlines have really gone above and beyond to try to uh, navigate around this whole situation. So they will have you wear a mask for the duration of your, of your flight. You'll actually have to wear a mask when you're in the airport for the entire time that you're there. Um, they disinfect the planes, plus they give you some very 
potent disinfectant wipes. And I say potent because you smell them as soon as the package is open. Um, and then uh, they also uh, try to, in, in some cases, space people out, but not all airlines do that. So you kind of have to dig a little bit into that. But yeah, so, so I would say like that's what they're doing for you. Outside of that, you know, just make sure that you're, you're kind of trying to practice the same things that you've been practicing at home. Um, if you're traveling by road for a long distance, I, I'd just suggest not stopping in too many locations on the way other than, you know, to get food or to get gas um, just because it ends up sort of protecting those communities. Yeah, I will tell you that um, road travel has become – I would say particularly challenging because it's not like there's a lot of places you can stop and use the restroom. You could go through the drive through yeah, yeah. but there's just not a lot of places. Anyway, so I, I just highlight that for those of you who haven't been away from home yet at all. Uh, all those bathrooms that used to be open in all of those places, no, no. It's more like Europe now. Uh, not, a lot, <laughs> not a lot of bathroom stops. All right, Zach, what else do you want to cover today um, in the COVID front? We could talk about colleges. We could talk about – we got so many things we could talk about. What do you want to talk about? Um, well, I, I do think it's uh, probably worth talking about the college situation right now because that, that's been kind of a really fascinating, fascinating development. All right. So, I mean, I'm reading one headline out of a, a university, uh, it's called Northeastern, where they've expelled a group of students, uh, you know, for failing to abide by social distancing guidelines. I'm sure we're going to see more of that. Um, it, they, they do seem like uh, incubators potentially for, uh, for spread. Yeah. So, I mean, what you have is our situations where you're bringing thousands of people back to a single location and the location you've got, you've basically brought, got, have all these people that have been isolated that you brought back and now they're able to socially interact with each other on a wide scale. So it's hard for people not to do that. Um, and, and interestingly enough, we're, we've seen a couple of cases like the one you brought up where people have been suspended for having large gatherings. And that's been in defiance of uh, or, orders that have been in place by the university. So they, these people have actually signed waivers to not do these things. So it's not like they just got suspended out of the blue. All right. And then you're at a university that's already been back in class for some period of time. My guess is some students then left for Labor Day weekend. Is there any, you know, sort of when they come back, having been away, is there any sort of concern about that? Well, we're we're actually in a in a fortunate situation um, where we canceled Labor Day on campus uh-huh. and we're ending the semester earlier. So you're seeing some variance across the country with how they're approaching holidays and things like that, um, because you do worry about people going out back home in mass because that that potentially puts communities at risk uh, right. when you start traveling back and forth. So so really, I think for places that haven't done that. Um, there, there starts to become a debate, especially if they've had travel in areas that have high rates of infection. Um, that's where you start to say, do they need to go into quarantine right away? And if you think about a huge campus, that's very, very difficult to do. Are your students asking different questions this year than they've been asking um, before? Or are they thinking differently about their future in, um, in medicine differently than, than maybe pre-COVID? You know, I, I think there's a lot of people that have uh, really had an increased interest in things like infectious disease, which is mm. my specialty area. Um, but then I'll just tell you, there's a lot of people that are very anxious. 
Mm-hmm. That that's where they're at right now. You know, the CDC had a morbidity and mortality weekly report they published a couple of weeks ago. Adults ages 18 to 24 um, over the past several months, one in four of them ended up having thoughts of suicide. Mm-hmm. So that's particularly concerning when we think about what this current situation has done to people. And yeah, there's some other things going on too that I think that have contributed, but it's definitely something we have to be aware of. COVID has um, comorbidities that are a little bit odd, and suicide ideation seems to be one of them. It's not actually related to people who have the virus, but it is a byproduct of our having um, had our lives and our life together so radically altered. So um, thank you for highlighting that. Uh, Critically important to be getting the help that you need if you are uh, if you're suffering and you're depressed um, and you're stressed, let's be sure that, uh, you know, people are getting the help that they need in addition to, obviously, um, any sort of medical attention uh, that you require. Hey, Zach, thank you, as always, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Have a blessed week. You too. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. So in case you haven't heard yet, uh, $300 and $400 extra unemployment benefits have been authorized by the President of the United States. Those actually start going out in a number of states almost immediately. Uh, At the same time, many states across the country are modifying their computer systems, so they should be able to process not only these enhanced unemployment benefits, but many of the backlogged requests. Um, Why am I bringing this up? Well, because um, I want to have a conversation about fear and what produces um, fear in terms of our jobs. And specifically, we're going to talk about the fear of losing your job if you're a college professor right now. And so I know that might seem like an isolated um, or very narrow conversation, but it is relevant to to all of us because what happens on American, American college campuses often does not stay there. So we're going to talk about cancel culture. We're going to talk about cancel culture at the university level. Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College is joining me next. Are you a patient person? Does your temper flare when the line is too long at the bank? Are you one of those drivers who pounds the steering wheel when there's traffic? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Patience while waiting online or on the highway is one thing, but it's never more needed than when parenting teens. I say it's the most important test of your competence as a mom or dad. Your teen will make mistakes. He'll forget his responsibilities or make a fool of himself in conversation. But it's just one more moment to take a deep breath and choose to love him anyway. We need to be patient, just as God is patient with us. And we need to pass along the same kind of grace and mercy to our teens. There's more from Mark Grayston on Parenting Today's Teens website. Get helpful tips for moms and dads when you visit parentingtodaysteens.org. Joining me again today, Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. Adam, welcome back. Glad to be back. Hope you're all well. Okay, I am well. I am well. Hey, I really... um, I just wanted to say there there's some cool stuff that you guys are doing at Hillsdale in terms of like free online courses. And I just wanted to say thanks. Oh, absolutely. So pass <laughs> and I my should little... say 
Yeah, I should say, by the way, it's more than just, uh, we, you know, obviously I've helped with one political-based one about the Constitution and others, but for those who that isn't even their thing, uh, there's uh, courses on Genesis, the book of Genesis, on Okay, so that's uh, actually Mark the one. It's so weird. Yeah. It's so weird you mentioned yeah. the Genesis one because that's actually the one that um, I was looking at, the Genesis story, reading biblical narratives, because it popped up in something, you know, random that I was researching and I was like, okay, that's so cool. And so anyway, so yeah, the Genesis story, reading biblical narratives is a free online course at Hillsdale. If you are looking for uh, just something, wow, flat out fascinating. I don't know who that bearded guy is, but he's pretty, he's pretty cool looking. <laughs> A uh, very good uh, professor, uh, Dr. Jackson. I, I highly recommend if, right. if you can be a student virtually. <laughs> there you go, right? So you can you can tell Dr. Jackson. I think he's definitely got the look for that online learning thing. Okay, um, let's talk about. So there's a guy named John McCorder. He is also a professor uh, linguistics at Columbia. So probably not a guy who I would regularly get to chat with. But he has an article that you and I have both read. And it's talking about how academics are worried about their freedom, particularly like freedom of speech, freedom of expression, sort of freedom of roaming around in the thought world because of the cancel culture and what he describes as, hey, this is no longer like conservatives complaining. There's now this circular firing squad among the left. If you're not as left as the most extreme people on the left, then you are um, subject to this uh, very, very real hostility. Talk, talk with us about what he is expressing, and then um, you and I probably find some tangents from there. Oh, absolutely. And what he's pointing at, I think universities are sort of the the most extreme version of a bigger thing about people that are uh, losing jobs, honors, future opportunities, because, as you said, um, it, it's as if there's a race to uh, uh, be as pure in your kind of new progressivism as possible, uh, especially th your understanding of race, of, of, of sex, of sexuality. And, and again, um, I think that there are legit, obviously these are things we should be talking about, things that there are legitimate concerns, that there uh, certainly you can claim there uh, rightly and, and wrongly that there are injustices uh, in, in, in areas. But uh, you're right that what, what's happening uh, that he's pointing to is um, instead of uh, um, uh, bringing these things up in a way that uh, mere, that that gets people to talk about them and gets people to have a more honest conversation and therefore maybe a conversation that moves toward better justice. Um, the tact that's been taken by, by some, and especially at the university level, is to uh, actually shut down conversation, to intimidate, to threaten people's jobs or future prospects, as I said, because they are unwilling, not just unwilling to listen to this uh, 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 more, uh, uh, I'd say, uh, extreme orthodoxy or more pure orthodoxy, but, because, uh, but not even letting people discuss it. Uh, and that there, and and it's interesting because especially we think of colleges and universities as places where, um, where we try to get at truth, 
and uh, uh, and the kind of intimidation that is is going on in in not opening up but shutting down these conversations, I think is he's pointing to how much it's even affecting people who consider themselves politically to the left. And he's saying in the in the Atlantic, which has you know more often more left leaning readers, uh, you should worry about this. Uh, this is a problem for academic discourse, and I think he also is intim- intimating that this is going to be a problem for wider public culture, because often what starts in universities can seep out to the rest and actually has in some instances. All right, I'm going to read um, part of one paragraph, because one of the things that this professor did, and again, this is this guy that we're talking about is a professor at Columbia, and um, he's engaging in a wider conversation among his colleagues at what I would describe as elite academic uh, institutions across the United States of America. And he had 150 people um, who are similar to himself respond to sort of his inquiry about what they were experiencing on their campuses. Here's one of the things that John McWhorter says. Overall, I found it alarming how many of the letters sound as if they were written from Stalinist Russia or Maoist China. A history professor reports that at his school, the administration is seriously considering setting up an anonymous reporting system for students and professors to report, quote, bias as they perceive it. One professor committed the sin of, quote, privileging the white male perspective in giving a lecture on the philosophy of one of the founding fathers. He goes on to say the administration tried to make him sit in a, quote, listening circle in which his job was to say to stay silent while students explained how he had hurt them. In other words, a 21st century American version of a struggle session straight out of the Cultural Revolution. Um, it, what is going on um, that we obviously don't see because these are not spaces where most of us are operating? Absolutely. And and I think what's going on is, you know, to try to, get, you know, be as charitable as possible – um, I think what you, you have some people that genuinely are frustrated at what at the racism they see, uh, uh, you know, the police shootings and 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 have a certain view of of uh, gender and biology that they think is not being fulfilled in society. And in their outrage, they're, they're outraged that more isn't being done about it. They want uh, justice as they understand it now. What they then have, but what what what? But while those ends are there, I think the problem has become one. Some of their um, understandings of justice are highly disputable. Uh, uh, not that racism is isn't wrong, but that uh, you know what they define as an instance of racism. I think they have a, a many of them have a, a view of gender and biology that frankly isn't biblical. Um, but also the way they're doing it is the idea is because they believe that um, talk hasn't worked, talk hasn't, discussion, persuasion has not worked. And so now they believe that they need to in some ways leave persuasion and discussion behind and move to really raw or forms of, I think, intimidation, uh, force. And it's interesting because in many ways they say that they need to do this. They need to be heard because they uh, uh, people's dignity is being denied. People's humanity is being denied. But I think in many ways the way they force these opinions on others is denying the dignity of the persons they're talking to or the persons they're talking at. Um, and it's also interesting, you know, you know, we, we know there's sin in the world um, – this view that uh, it, it sort of says that um, people are good enough 
that you can eradicate sin, it seems like. Uh, people, and it assumes people are bad enough that you have to do it by intimidation and force. And I think when you bring all of those things together, uh, you get what I think is is uh, t- taking at times well-meaning intentions and toxically undermining good discourse and undermining even the humanity of the people you're talking to. Let's just pause right there um, and let that sink in and settle in a little bit. And for those of you who are having conversations with uh, with high school students about where they're going to spend their time beyond high school um, and at what institutions and at the feet of what kind of uh, of academic uh, professors and teachers and in what kind of learning environment, I don't think there has been a more critical time for Christian parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles to engage in the conversation with our young people about where they go next, because um, the the academic institutions across this country are wildly diverse in terms of the experience that your student is going to have. Um, and some of our students are more well prepared for this kind of environment than others. Um, but I think it's also fair to say that uh, Christian kids are are going to need some real equipping if we are going to send them into the kinds of academic environments that uh, that Adam and I are talking about right now. All right, Adam Carrington and I from Hillsdale College, we're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. We're going to take a little bit of a pivot, and we're going to talk about rioting. That's right. Well, it's because it's not much of a pivot from this. All right, order and justice and rioting and the upcoming uh, election. That's all up next here on Mornings with Carmen. You're my defender. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. Um, Adam, let's talk about what uh, continues across the country. It doesn't matter which day of the week it is. It seems like there is a headline related to rioting and the loss of life in some city across the country. Um, The appetite for such uh, is, um, well, it's an interesting moment in American history, is it not? And I would like for you to simply give us your um, your assessment, what are you hearing, um, how are you engaging in this subject matter, and how do you think it affects the upcoming election? Right. I, I mean, I think on one level, this uh, one place to compare it to is those, and, and I was not alive at this point, but those who remember the riots in 1968, the late 60s. Um, and what you're seeing is uh, – uh, obviously, a reaction to uh, especially uh, killings like uh, by by the police of men like George Floyd and similar incidents, and it's become uh, uh, the question. I think that uh, uh, we were talking about last time, which is if you see an injustice, how do you go about? articulating uh, your view and trying to make there be real changes. And uh, again, I think that uh, uh, some of the, you know, the claims being made, the worries being articulated have legitimacy to them and that there needs to be actions taken. In fact, there's certain things I think need to be done. Um, uh, And I think when those things spill from just come, you know, or you know, expressing worries to actual protests. As long as those are peaceful protests, those can be good. I think protests are one way to express 
uh, yourself to express your objections in a way that can be heard, in a way that can be get people's attention. But uh, the violence that has happened with some of these, and I emphasize some of these, there's certainly been a lot of very peaceful protesters, I think goes back to what we were talking about in the last segment of replacing the dignity of human beings to reason together with uh, force and violence to make people obey. And the destruction of innocent people's property, often people that are part of the groups that uh, have been oppressed historically, um, the lack of order that uh, uh, undermines that can undermine the ability of society to even act once we decide what justice is. I think that's more worrisome. Peaceful protests good, uh, violent protests bad. And it is going to be interesting how you, you asked how this affects the election. Um on one hand, I think a lot of people are very sympathetic to the protests and have shown their sympathy to the intentions of the protests. But I think the more there is violence, the more pe people will kind of realize, and this goes all the way back to ancient political philosophy, that people want to be safe before they're willing to venture out to pursue justice. And, and I'm not saying that's always right, but that is how human beings tend to work. And uh, I, I think the more the violence becomes front and center, the less the claims of justice actually have, have a chance to get through. And the more those arguing for order over justice have an advantage in the election versus the, the reverse. Yeah, I don't know. I watched something over the weekend where like uh, rioters were actually like pulling people out of their chairs uh, at a uh, sure. at a restaurant, you know. Right. And I'm, I'm just yep. telling you, once it. Once you start encroaching on everyday Americans' ability to just live their lives, you become like a terrorist. Like you have mm -hmm. you are at the stage where you are trying to scare me into um, whatever it is that you think we all ought to be doing together on. Uh, and, and, and this is the part that's unclear to me. I don't even sometimes know what they're out there doing. I recognize that people are very upset um, about uh, about police brutality and the engagement with police in some situations across the country. I get that. The situations, uh, and we highlight them here, and we talk about them here, and we talk about the injustice, and we talk about how we have to do better. Um, but in the midst of all of that, people need to be allowed to live their lives. And um, And once you get to the place where what you are doing in a in a protest encroaches on other people's ability to lead their lives, you have stepped over the line. You've stepped over the line. Yeah, and so, and, and it you know, will and, come and, to backfire. Yeah, and the and the legal line is really blurry in some places. I just learned that apparently in the entire state of Washington, there is no statute that uses the word riot. And so, you know, that's why we, we keep hearing them not use the term. Well, it's because it's not in their lexicon as a state. It hasn't been for like seven years. And so when, um, when we're looking for in the media uh, the use of the word riot instead of the, uh, instead of the use of the word protest, in some places in the country, riot doesn't even exist. And so they have to use the language of their particular um, you know, legal system, which in Washington means criminal mischief. Well, that doesn't sound... That doesn't sound like a riot to me, but in the way it's defined in their um, in their state, it certainly, you know, rioting falls into this category of criminal mischief. Anyway, um, what else do you want to say on this? 
Well, yeah, that I think that was that, that's really helpful because uh, I, one thing to think about is the difference between what's legal and what's morally obligatory. Mm. And I think that goes and I think that goes back to even the free speech discussions because we're talking about free speech. Technically the first amendment, the legal standard only says the government can't shut down your speech. Uh, it's perfectly legitimate uh, legally for citizens and groups of citizens to say, I don't want to hear you, I refuse to hear you, et cetera, et cetera, as long as they don't use actual violence. Um, but is that the obligation morally we owe to each other? And mm. even if something doesn't cross the line, screaming at people, uh, trying to intimidate them, at least verbally, even when that doesn't cross the line, and actually that can legally, um, what do we owe to each other? And I think that as much as some of the people here are arguing, uh, as I think you rightly say, not always coherently, what is owed to them or other aspects of society, um, there's not always the argument of what do we owe to each other mutually. And I think you can't get to a common good, which is what we're really seeking, a good common to all of us, until we consider that point of view. Indeed, what do we owe uh, to one another in in honor and in dignity and in just the living together of these days? Um, Adam, thank you for helping us think through what we are experiencing. Um, thank you for reminding us of the righteous foundations uh, and for always <clears throat> drawing us home. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. I love being on here with you guys. Thank you. That's Adam Carrington. You can find him at Hillsdale College. We'll be right back. Okay, so, um, hey, Paul, did everybody hear that little shout-out to Susie Larson Live or just me? They oh, did, great. Yes. Okay, so you heard it. Okay, so I learned something over the weekend, so here's my second little shout-out to my colleague, Susie Larson. I learned over the weekend that you are my sister's favorite daily broadcaster. She didn't know we were colleagues. She didn't even know we were on the same network. I know, what does that say about our communication in our family? But... Let me just say this, Susie Larson, you are speaking into my sister's life every single day. She goes to you for uh, daily encouragement. And so I just wanted to very publicly say thank you, thank you, thank you uh, to Susie today. Check out her program later today. You can obviously go and listen to podcasts at MyFaithRadio.com. My colleague, Bill Arnold, as well. Lots of great programming there for you to go and grab. Hey, next week is uh, Fall Share. So you're going to hear a lot more of me, not just uh, during the morning hours, but all of us will be on in a lot of hours throughout the day, thanking our listeners and inviting those who do not yet financially support this listener-supported ministry to do so. So there you go. That's the first hour of Monday on Tuesday. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.